choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 319 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 14, Lunar Liftoff. It'll be interesting to see what the way it goes in the future, because the Russians have already announced their plans to build scores of lunar gods, as they say, to explore the moon, Mars, and the other planets. And uh, our Apollo program ends at Apollo 17. Our lunar Apollo program ends at 17. It'll be interesting to see which route both nations go, or whether both nations can go a common route, the kind of area that Colonel Borman started the discussions on in Moscow last year, toward a joint space exploration program, and a theory that exploring even the inner of the outer planets, like Mars, is so expensive no one nation can afford to do it alone. Well, I think also any uh, significant program must complement the... both manned and, and unmanned exploration. Certainly when we talk about Mars, the way will have to be preceded by unmanned vehicles, just as the way to the moon was, by the surveyor, the ranger, and the lunas. Right. To, re- to recap here, Frank, just a few of the key numbers. The hatch is sealed after nine hours of two moonwalks on Apollo 14. Al Shepard and uh, Ed Mitchell both in good shape. They're going to eat, rest, and clean up for the next five and a half hours before a scheduled liftoff this afternoon at 1.47 p.m. Eastern Time to rendezvous, and it's a new type of rendezvous, a short rendezvous in one orbit with the Apollo 14 command ship, the Kitty Hawk, which has been orbiting overhead this entire time with Stu Rusa. They aim to dock with the Kitty Hawk at 3.30 p.m. this afternoon. There are still a few unanswered questions and a few uneasy thoughts about how well the docking will go, though in most people's minds in Houston, the docking probe will work all right. So those are the key events that lie ahead after the docking, a trans-Earth insertion burn late tonight, 8.37 p.m. tonight, that heads them toward a splashdown Tuesday afternoon, just after 4 p.m. in the South Pacific time. You know, uh, it's, it's been a great mission, of course, and uh, I don't like to speak of it in the past tense because there's still quite a bit to happen. Uh, they've had their share of problems, though, haven't they, Frank? Yeah. I'd kind of like to see it go smoothly from now. So would I. I would very much, uh, again, uh, we go so, grow so accustomed uh, to this, uh, really, the the events that concerns us, concerned us on Apollo 8 are almost uh, trivial today. The relighting, the coming on, the re-entry. Uh, Without a new crisis, each day it might get dull. Yes. <laughs> well, the next uh, big moment, of course, comes when they lift off the lunar surface this afternoon, and that will happen at uh, 1.47 Eastern Time. ABC News will go on the air at 1.30 in order to bring you coverage of uh, that great event. And also, of course, we'll be back uh, at 3 o'clock this afternoon to bring you the live pictures of the rendezvous and the docking. The rendezvous and docking was a major problem, or the docking, rather, was a major problem on their way up to the moon. 
Uh, it's a major event on their way back, and we'll be around to tell you all about it this afternoon. So for Frank Foreman and Jules Bergman, this is Frank Reynolds at ABC Space Headquarters in New York. Good day. Saturday, February 6, 1971. After the second moonwalk, Shepard and Mitchell began their post-EVA number two activities, which included preparing the ascent module for normal operation and removing their portable life support system. The next major task was to depressurize the cabin, jettison equipment that was no longer needed, and repressurize. This occurred at about an hour after the second EVA ended. When the equipment was jettisoned, it hit the surface so hard that it registered on the seismometer. Okay, this one is jettison now. Okay. Uh, you guys really registered the uh, seismometer on those last ones. That's good. Good heavy throw. This is Apollo Control Houston at uh, 137 hours, 36 minutes, a ground to last time. Very quiet aboard Antares. Al Shepard and Ed Mitchell stowing uh, the material uh, and equipment that they have returned from the lunar surface. Uh, next point in our flight plan uh, where we expect to hear more from them uh, will be the uh, post-EVA uh, debriefing. This perhaps uh, 20 or 30 minutes away from this time. Next, the astronauts began a cabin cleanup procedure that involved stowing equipment and weighing samples. Well, we're pressing along here. Fred, we're uh, pretty well along in our stowage. And if you uh, look at the service checklist, we're at the top of the second column at page 75. Okay, very good, Al. Huh? And we'll have a weight report of the location of all the storage for you here momentarily. Okay. And then we'll probably eat, and then we'll probably rest for a while. A few minutes later, Shepard reported to Houston the weights of the samples they collected on the second moonwalk. The weights were measured using a moon-calibrated spring scale. Total samples for Moonwalk 2 weighed in at 109 terrestrial pounds. We gave you the weights. We gave you the weights of the rocks that we put in the left-hand stowage yesterday. Uh, we have some additional rocks that are in the ISA. The total weight of the ISA is five zero pounds. Total weight of the SRC is two niner pounds. And we have a couple of large rocks in a sample bag on C-27 and that weight is three zero pounds. Okay, uh, Al, I copy that. It looks like a pretty good haul. Yeah, sure does. And we'll be ready for debriefing in about another 10 minutes. Okay, I'll just give us a call. Uh, we got some, uh, some of the questions ready here uh, anytime you're ready. The final major task before the eat and rest period was the EVA number 2 debriefing, 
with Houston. Here are some of the highlights. Uh, next question. Uh, the uh, difficulty uh, you had uh, at the last there, uh, climbing up to uh, Cone Rim, uh, was that uh, due primarily to the uh, terrain uh, slope? Or uh, did the uh, soil conditions uh, change again that uh, made cause you have some greater problems? I think probably both. Uh, I think we just entirely underestimated the difficulty of going that far and getting that high in such a short period of time. It's uh, a darn hard climb uh, to try to do rapidly, and the soil's a little bit that thin and, and uh, mushy, and the suits are bulky. It's all those problems rolled in, Fred. We just were too ambitious, I guess. Ed Mitchell's conclusion was supported by the experiences of Apollo 15, 16, and 17. With the lunar rover to do the hill climbing work, the J mission crews could reach sites on slopes even steeper than the 10 degrees of cone. Of course, at such sites, they had to be a little cautious about moving too far downhill from the rover because of the effort of getting back up. And in places, the slope and the softness of the soil made the work more difficult. The best plan of action was to move cross-slope as much as possible. In hindsight, it may have been better to allocate more time to the cone climb so that the crew could have done some cross-slope traversing. It is even possible that they could have made better time, walking farther but making fewer rest stops. One more question here. Uh, you mentioned uh, seeing blocks around the rim of, uh, of North uh, Triplet. Uh, did you happen to get a look far enough down there to see if you also saw either blocks or uh, ray patterns uh, from center, center uh, Triplet Crater? Uh, Fred, it's so darn undulating here. That was part of our problem. We couldn't even see Central Triplet Crater. We knew it was there, but you can walk in some of these undulations and get lost from each other if you're not careful. Uh, you just can't find where you are. And uh, we couldn't, be, couldn't see anything from Central Trip, but I didn't know it was from that. After the mission, Mitchell continued his thoughts on surface conditions, saying, quote, We expected one and two feet low rolls and craters, etc., but when they got to six to eight feet differences in elevation, and I often walked over a ridge and I couldn't even see Al. And you know, he couldn't be more than 20 or 30 feet away. That was totally beyond our expectations. And it just so messed up navigation, messed up trying to see ray patterns. It was kind of like being on the ocean with choppy waves. Every wave looks just like the next wave. That was really the fundamental thing that got us behind, messed us up so that all the pre-planning and all the great ideas we had about how we were going to do this and how we were going to do that just simply went out the window and we were winging it from the moment we started out on that EVA. Okay, that's, uh, that's about it. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. It was a bit... Okay, that was a good job of getting us sorted out there when uh, we got behind the sideline. We appreciate that help.
Well, we thank you again for doing a great job, Al. And Ned, uh, I think we picked up uh, everything we needed there. Yeah, I hope so. It sure, sure was a panic from our point of view. Well, we kind of knew that uh, before we got there. Ed. Things we like to have done. Yeah, I think you're right, Fredo. There were so many things we'd like to have done, so many things to do, so many interesting things to look at here, and we didn't even have a chance to scratch the surface. We hope we brought back something that you can sort out as time goes on. Well, it's a little better than that sand pile out back of the training building anyway, though, isn't it? Oh, man. Oh, man, you can, don't you know it. That really is. It's fantastic up here. The checklist called for a one-hour rest period starting at 140 hours, 10 minutes mission elapsed time. Shepard and Mitchell were now roughly two hours ahead of schedule. Unlike Conrad and Bean on Apollo 12, they were running short of oxygen at the end of Moonwalk 2 and consequently had no regrets about having this extra time to rest and prepare themselves for the launch. And how's our friendly command module pilot doing? Is he going to be ready to pick us up with a nominal launch time? Hey, you bet, Al. Uh, I've been talking with him all morning here, and uh, he's really whipping around, getting a lot of pictures and uh, doing a lot of landmark tracking. Uh, he said he's picked you up on two passes uh, now, and he also uh, saw the reflections from the all-sap on his last pass through there. Very good. How about the high car? Did you ever get that going? Yeah, that's negative. Not too bad. Yeah, Ron, the, uh, the uh, ALSAP from the top of Cone Crater is uh, so bright it stands out like a little jewel. I'm not surprised at all that Stu could see it. Uh, he was uh, really convinced that that's what he saw, and uh, he didn't even know where it was, you know, and uh, asked me where it was and uh, came back and uh, sure enough confirmed that that's where it was. At last, launch prep began, with Houston sending up the pad data for rendezvous to be entered into the primary guidance and navigation system. This will be the first attempt at a direct rendezvous. Once in orbit, instead of going around the moon, Antares will immediately go into terminal phase initiation to begin rendezvous with Kitty Hawk. Next, the crew spent quite some time working through communications problems with the steerable antenna. Then, it was time for the hot fire test. This involved firing two of the reaction control system thrusters at a time to check all positions of the hand controller and the thrusters. As with Apollo 12, the limb rocked and the surface S-band antenna blew over. Uh, Houston, are you ready for the hot fire of the jet? That's affirmative, Antares. Okay, Houston, the uh, antenna blew over. All right, your Antares. Next, the crew aligned the inertial platform, which was used to determine spacecraft attitude. Ed Mitchell and Al Shepard aboard Antares on the lunar surface have just completed the uh, alignment of their guidance system platform. And uh, Capcom Ron Evans will be passing up to Stu Rusa uh, information on stowing the probe assembly uh, in the command module. The plan is to return the probe and uh, it will be stowed under one of the couches in the uh, command module Kitty Hawk. 
Mitchell and uh, Shepard aboard Antares have switched to the guidance program in their uh, onboard guidance system, program 12, which will be used in the uh, powered ascent from the lunar surface. And the lunar module ascent stage batteries, batteries 5 and 6, uh, look good at this time. Uh, the voltages are normally and they're sharing the load well. At this time aboard uh, Kitty Hawk, Stu Rusa is maneuvering the command module to the proper attitude for the uh, LAM liftoff. Uh, he'll have the CSM apex pointed toward the lunar surface. And uh, Capcom Ron Evans uh, has advised Rusa that uh, the lunar module appears to be in good shape for liftoff uh, with the one uh, problem of the LEM steerable antenna, which uh, uh, may give some problem in tracking, and if it does, we'll be switching uh, to one of the Omni antennas on the lunar module. This is Apollo Control at 142 hours, 6 minutes. We're coming up now on 20 minutes until lunar liftoff. And aboard Antares, uh, Shepard and Mitchell will shortly begin pressurizing the ascent propulsion system. Here in the control center, the large plot boards, which will be used primarily by the flight dynamics officer and the guidance officer for the lunar ascent, uh, have come up. Uh, one of these displays in particular will be crucial to the flight dynamics officer, and that's a display which shows him altitude versus the uh, rate of altitude gain. Uh, the FIDO will use this display uh, in determining whether the uh, LEM guidance system is putting the proper amount of energy uh, into gaining altitude as opposed to gaining velocity. Uh, initially, the uh, engine will be putting a larger percentage of its energy into altitude gain. Uh, later on in the burn, uh, the LEM will be pitching over, and the uh, rate of altitude gain should drop off as the velocity gain begins to increase, increase at an ever-growing uh, ever rate. Okay, Houston, we're standing by to pressurize the ascent helium. And Terry Houston, your go on that uh, one at a time, please. With the okay given from Houston, the astronauts fired the explosive charge that allowed the flow of pressurized helium from Helium Tank 1 into both the ascent fuel tank and the ascent oxidizer tank. Then they repeated it for the second helium tank. Now pressurized helium was available to both propellant tanks from the two helium tanks. Houston then gave them the go for liftoff. Antares, this is Houston. You are go for liftoff this pass. Direct rendezvous. Guidance control pings. Over. Roger. Go for liftoff. Direct rendezvous. Guidance pings. Roger out. This is Apollo Control. We're now 15 minutes from lunar liftoff. Uh, everything looks good at this time. And we've given the uh, crew the go for a direct ascent rendezvous uh, with a nominal liftoff time. Our liftoff time, uh, 142 hours, 25 minutes, 42 seconds. Next, the astronauts configured the ascent batteries and verified circuit breaker position for liftoff. This is Apollo Control at 142 hours, 16 minutes, and we're coming up now on 10 minutes until lunar liftoff. It's been relatively quiet here in the control center. Also, relatively little communications with Antares at this time. The powered ascent uh, burn is scheduled to last about 7 minutes, 12 seconds. At the end of that burn, we should have achieved a velocity of about 5,543 feet per second. 
the electrical systems engineer uh, here in the control center for the lunar module uh, reports that those ascent batteries on the LEM, which were a source of some concern prior uh, to the power descent and the landing, uh, look good at this time. This is Apollo Control, now five minutes from lunar liftoff. Everything's still looking very good uh, for that uh, liftoff and direct ascent rendezvous. At the time of liftoff, uh, Stu Rusa in Kitty Hawk uh, should be uh, about 67 nautical miles behind the uh, lunar module and uh, at orbit insertion some seven, seven minutes, uh, 12 seconds later, uh, the command module will be leading by about 135 nautical miles. Shortly before liftoff, uh, Shepard and Mitchell aboard the lunar module are scheduled to make a VHF voice check uh, with RUSA in the command module. We're now coming up on four minutes until lunar liftoff. Just before launch, Antares tried to raise Kitty Hawk on the VHF radio, but were not successful. Kitty Hawk, Antares, how do you read? Antares, Houston, Kitty Hawk is reading you three by on VHF. Roger. We're not reading him. Okay, we'll pass that to him. And uh, Antares is counting. Counting down to two minutes. Three, two, one, mark two minutes and counting. We concur. And now the final seconds before liftoff. Ready to get loud and clear. We have 45 seconds and counting. Okay, and hello. We'll see you shortly. Okay, just use on time. Have a nice, cool and set up. Okay, the abort stage is set. Gas and engine is armed. Six, five, four, Hello. three, two, one. Zero. We have ignition. What a liftoff. And liftoff. Roger, ignition. Boom. Pitch There's over. Pitch over. Ten seconds. Roger. Hey, baby. It's always good. We confirm auto ignition. Salutations from the land of 10,000 lakes. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 319 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 14. Lunar Liftoff. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. If you're looking for old episodes, the first 147 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on all podcatchers. Had a couple of afterthoughts on this week's episode. This episode was mainly based on the Apollo 14 Surface Journal, as well as other documents from NASA and the associated audio clips. None of my other sources covered the liftoff of Apollo 14 from the moon. And strangely enough, the transcripts from the Apollo 14 flight journal end with the liftoff from the moon. So, I guess the NASA historians didn't feel like anything special happened after the lunar liftoff. That is a little premature in my opinion as the docking was somewhat questionable 
since they had that docking probe, which had been a problem when they docked the first time. So, I plan to cover the docking, the splashdown, and the aftermath of the mission to finish up Apollo 14, and then we'll continue our study of other significant missions that occurred in 1971. And after that, of course, we'll move to 72 because our podcast here is a timeline and we do it by year. In case you didn't remember that, most of you know that, but we have a few new listeners that weren't quite aware of how things work. But right now we're in 1971 and after we finish 1971, we'll go to 72 and continue going forward. The first audio clip for this episode came from ABC News. It was Jules Bergman, Frank Borman from Apollo 8, and Frank Reynolds speaking. I started to cut out that first part about them speculating on the future of space exploration from their viewpoint in 1971, but I thought you might find it interesting because I really did. Do you recall back on Apollo 12 when Pete Conrad ran Alan Bean around the moon to complete their assignment, only to have a long period of time sitting in the limb with nothing to do. Pete was pretty vocal about his unhappiness with that. Now, contrast that with Shepard and Mitchell working so hard to climb Cone Crater and using so much more oxygen on their second moonwalk. They were happy to have a little rest before the liftoff from the moon. There were no complaints there. So, what are you going to (laughs) do? Okay, the pictures for this week's episode are available on the website, spacerockethistory.com. I hope you check that out. Well, folks, it looks like we are back to famine mode as far as financial support for the podcast goes this past week. We had one new donation, but we are appreciative of that. And I would like to recognize Mike L., who donated at the Mercury level and earned a rocket emoji. We also lost four Patreon donors, and we are back down to 235, with a goal of reaching 300 for 2019. Our total donors for 2019 have reached 420, with a goal of reaching 600 in 2019. Please consider supporting the podcast if you are financially able and willing. To do so, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Click on the orange donate button to make a one-time donation or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. Now, all of my supporters are rewarded in four ways. Their names are added on the donors page at the level they choose to donate. And also, there are longevity emojis for multiple years of contributions. And that is explained a little better on the donors page at spacerockethistory.com. Contributors also receive a thank you message from me and are recognized on the podcast and are automatically entered in the weekly giveaway. So, for the 420 of you who have already donated for 2019... We certainly appreciate it. Here is Mrs. SRH with the donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, everyone. I'm happy to announce this week's winner of the SRH logo magnet. 
With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Stephen Meir. Stephen Meir, if you would email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell us your address, we will mail this out to you. Thank you to all 420 of you who have contributed thus far in 2019. My sources for this week's episode were the Internet Archive, ABC News, the Apollo 14 Surface Journal, NASA, Flickr, and Wikipedia. Okay, folks, that's all we have for this week. I will try to have episode 320 posted by next Thursday. So long for now.